Thank you for joining us again, friends, for another episode of Immigration Crisis, the fight for the southern border. Republicans and Democrats would rather use this issue of immigration as a campaign issue to draw contrasts or to fundraise on or to drive their social media profiles than actually solving the problem. So I have to admit, this week was a little different. We started out in Brownsville, walked to the middle of the bridge on the U.S. side, and we stepped just over the area that's considered to be the controlled area of CBP, Customs and Border Pr Protection. And the reason we did that was to meet a couple, a Russian couple, that we had been following probably for almost two months. Their trek took them from all the way across the world in St. Petersburg over to Belarus, then on to Istanbul, then to Amsterdam, then to Cancun, to Matamoros, and then Brownsville, Texas, once they were allowed to come in. Now, the reason we're talking to them is because not only are they asylum seekers, and I have to admit, being in that sea of people at 6 a.m. on that bridge, you could barely walk through it. Most of the people waiting, of course, had darker hair, darker skin, and then all of a sudden you start seeing blonde-haired people and lighter brown hair people and blue-eyed people and we knew that we were getting close to where the Russians were at. Waiting for their asylum appointment to be able to come across. So a lot of the comments that we received after the story aired, which you can go to foxsanantonio.com and find it, um, a lot of the comments were people concerned. How are we letting Russians into the United States? Are they being vetted? Are it security you know, measures being taken to make sure that they're not spies. So we decided to go directly to one of the congressmen that used to be in charge of a border area here. We should be ultimately concerned. Um, are the Russian and Russian intelligence services specifically looking at this as an opportunity? He's a Republican, Will Hurd. Will Hurd uh, now is in the private sector and Will Hurd also used to work for the CIA. So we decided to ask him about the vetting process for the Russians and anyone really coming from any country that is considered to be communist. We also saw a lot of people from China and people from Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is not communist, but they used to be a part of Russia. So we talked about that with Will Hurd, and we also spoke about all the legislation that was left there and that is still there in Washington, D.C., to make some meaningful, meaningful immigration laws come true. We can talk about policies, but policies are not the law. The laws can be done only by whom? By the congressmen, congresswomen, and the senators that you elect in Washington, D.C. That is their job. So we talked to the former congressman about why nothing has been able to be accomplished that is meaningful and that will stay, that will be a law of the United States. Uh -huh. 
So when you hear of Russians coming in, because a lot of the viewers were concerned when the story came out, and the majority of them say they're leaving because there's mobilization going on in Russia. So what kind of a background check? How important is that background check? And can it thoroughly be done in three weeks to allow them to come into the country? Look, uh, an appropriate background check where you check um, intelligence records, things like that, uh, that can be done in, in three weeks if the right sources um, are used. And pe we should be ultimately concerned. Um, are the Russian and Russian intelligence services specifically looking at this as an opportunity to create cover to get more people into the country? Now, um, the, the other thing we got to, to balance with that is it's pretty easy for a Russian in a passport to come to the United States, right? And and so so these are the questions that Border Patrol eyes need to be thinking through when it comes to evaluating this process, right? And and this is another reason why um, the crisis that's happening on the border uh, it, it's getting in the way of people that have legitimate asylum claims. Uh, when you have so many folks that don't. And so uh, this is going to continue to be a problem until until we figure out how to actually uh, control our borders and streamline legal immigration and address root causes of these problems that are, that are fueling um, this illegal immigration. Many people see you mm -hmm. as a cool, calm, mm -hmm. collected head sure. that can talk to Democrats sure. and that can talk to the far right of the Republicans. What are we doing wrong right now? You were sitting up there in sure. Washington, D.C. I keep doing stories and telling mm -hmm. people, this is not gonna be settled down here. Yeah. If you wanna change, Title 42 is not the change. Right. That is a policy. Mm -hmm. Why can't a law be rewritten? Why can't mm -hmm. we fix this in Washington? Well, the, the fundamental problem of this is elected officials. Republicans and Democrats would rather use this issue of immigration as a campaign issue to draw contrasts or to fundraise on or to drive their social media profiles than actually solving the problem. The fixes that need to happen are actually quite clear and quite simple. And when, you, when the, the public hears about them, it's like 80% of the country is like, yeah, we agree on this. Let's start with something very simple, asylum. We're treating everybody that's coming into the country illegally as an asylum seeker. That is not how asylum works. Asylum is clear. You have to be part of a protected class, right? You have to be, you have to be persecuted by your government or you're persecuted by another entity and your government is unwilling to defend you. Those are the requirements for asylum. And when you look over the history of the United States, if you look over the last 30 years, about, um, it, it fluctuates, but I think on average, between 30 and 35% of asylum claims have actually um, been granted, which means about 70 are denied. So the fact that two administrations, this, this process of treating everybody as asylum started on the last administration under the Trump administration and the Biden administration has continued this. This is what is, is bringing 2.5 million people through our country illegally last year. That's an insane number. That's basically two San Antonios, right? And so, so it starts with, that's, that's step one. Step two, we know everything that needs to be deployed on our border to have 
what's called operational control, where we know everything that's coming back and forth across our border. We've done mile by mile assessments. It requires political will to execute and do that. The third piece, streamline legal immigration. Despite the current uh, uh, environment, we're, financial environment we're in, and dealing with inflation and the concerns of a recession, you're still seeing a lot of industries that need workers. So let's streamline legal immigration. If you're gonna be a productive member of our society and a hardworking member of our society, let's get you here, but let's do it legally. We know what that looks like. There's legislation in Washington, D.C. that I helped craft that would ultimately pass. And the last thing that we need to deal with is address the root causes in places like El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, which has historically driven most of the illegal immigration we've seen in our country. Things it, a little bit different now over the last couple of months because it's basically coming from everywhere, right? But historically, that Northern Triangle in Central America is a place. Oh, and by the way, foreign dollars or, or foreign assistance dollars, right, goes, is a fraction of the cost. And when you solve the problem there, it's a fraction of the cost than having to use federal dollars to solve the problem here. So we should be having a long-term economic strategy on how to address violence, lack of economic opportunity, and extreme poverty in those places. Those are the things that, that we need to address. And how to do that, the legislation that's crafted, been, it's been crafted, it's sitting there. You know what, it need, what needs to be done, but unfortunately, Again, you have too many political uh, uh, politicians, excuse me, that would rather argue about this and point their finger about what's wrong than actually solving it. And so, so that the people that are willing to step up and solve this problem, I think, are ultimately going to be rewarded because that's what the American public wants. I think that was the big takeaway from the 2022 election is we want common sense people to solve problems. And that's what I think the country, and especially our state, and I know our city, um, really wants to see happen. When is it going to happen? I mean, you're no, no longer there. Sure. I don't know how you did it, because mm -hmm. it has to be frustrating when you know what needs to get done, but everybody's more interested in getting reelected. Sure. Look, I, uh, so if I had to say you know, one thing that's forcing this to happen, it's our primary process. Majority of seats, uh, let's, take, let's take the House of Representatives. 92% of seats in the last presidential election were decided in the primary. And generally, on average, only 4% of the population votes in the primary. So when you do all the math, it's about 32,501 people decide, on average, the majority of the House seats. That's insane. They weren't like my seat. You know, when I was in, it was competitive. And the, 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 the election was really in November, in the general election. And on average, you had about 300, a little bit under 300,000 people uh, voting in general elections, right? So you have more people doing that. And so, so, so the way, look, we can talk about change to voting and all this kind of stuff, but the only way, the quickest way to get this done is if more people voted in primaries. And, and because you usually have better candidates who are interested in solving the problems. And so when we, 
as, as the electorate, as a society, reward at the ballot people that are solving problems, then guess what? We're gonna see more people solving problems, right? And so, so it's hard. Most people don't follow politics like sports, right? And, and so, so that's, that's, I think, is one of those things that I've been trying to get people vote more in primaries because you're gonna get, there's always somebody better, but the best doesn't always rise to the top um, because people are more interested in clicking on things that are about crazy stuff. I always, whenever I give speeches, and I always ask the crowd, how many of y'all have ever clicked on an ad or, or an article that said Congress worked? Right, and everybody giggles and nobody, because nobody raises their hand. They, they click on the latest drama from some crazy person um, talking about doing something buck wild, right? Like that's what we, that's, that's so, so we need to be better and, and, and reward those people that want to solve those problems. When we're talking about the money that we're sending overseas, mm. when we're talking about the money that we send, for example, to Guatemala, sure. half of the time, those in power end up getting the money rather than the indigenous people mm -hmm. in some parts of Guatemala that need the money because the cartels are taking over their land. They can't farm. That's why we see so many indigenous mm -hmm. kids coming across the border. So how do, how do we sure. tie those two things together? So, so, so those, specific, those specific instances, I'm, I'm, I, I can't speak to and unaware, but in general, what I can say, um, historically, the way foreign aid has always worked, it, you're right, it goes directly to a government, right? But there are so many international and American NGOs that are operating in places. We don't always have to give the money directly to the government, right? And, and I think that is a policy that needs to be looked at um, to make sure that we're accounting for those dollars that we are giving. Like, I know that there have been programs in, in Guatemala that have helped train the police. When, when you don't trust the police, like when you have to go to a police officer and, and doing something as simple as asking for directions, that police officer asks for a bribe, when there's a real problem, you're not gonna go to the police. And so we've seen programs that the State Department runs to train the police and community policing, which happens in, in many of the, the great departments that operate in the United States, right? So we have, and then guess what? When you saw, and when they when they hire new police, train them in in the latest best practices. Guess what we saw happen? You saw a decrease in the number of people that were leaving that part of of the country to come to the United States illegally. So so we know these programs work. But you're absolutely right. Foreign dollars need to be accounted for. We need to make sure that that money is going to the right places. We have to take more than just a couple of months view on these things. We gotta take a long view. We have a difficult time doing that in government, you know, for our own issues, right? Let alone trying to do it in another country. But yes, uh, uh, but, but it's still, foreign aid is a fraction of the federal budget. To solve a problem in, in Central or South America is a fraction of the cost of having to solve it in Del Rio, Eagle Pass, or El, El, El Paso, right? And so that's why we gotta get that right. And so this is not just one organization that's responsible for this. This is not just the Department of Homeland Security's responsibility. This is the, the, the State Department's responsibility. DOD has a role. You know, everybody has a role in making sure that we are doing what's best 
to uplift the quality, improve the quality of life for all Americans while uplifting humanity. We can't do all those things at the same time. It's hard. It requires people that understand these issues. A lot of this is, look, now with the, the technology you can be using and some of the new things in fintech and fin, in financial technology, the ability to deliver and do accounting where you can't get some money taken off the top anymore because it's all accounted for. These are some of the tools that we need to be adopting, but that also requires people that are making these laws and doing these things to understand and have an understanding uh, of technology so we could, we're using it to do these things. This morning, uh, a bus going from Darien, Panama, mm -hmm. going over to the border with Costa Rica, mm -hmm. lost control of the vehicle, wow. so over 39 people, and wow. they say the number's gonna mm -hmm. continue, that have passed away. The message is not getting through. People yeah. are still coming through the Darien jungle. Yeah. What else yeah. needs to be done? We have sure. put it out there. Yeah. We've had the president come out. It wasn't as strong. Mm -hmm. It's still people still kind of sure. had the message that the border was open. What else can be done in country in Venezuela, look, look, Cuba? I, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because one point I failed to, to, to explain in, in some of my previous conversations is we have to dismantle the human smuggling networks. Human smugglers are putting uh, good people at risk, right? The, so, so when you look at anybody that's come into the country illegally, they have a cell phone of someone that they coordinated their travel with. They have a license place of a bus. They have a meeting location of where they were supposed to show up. And guess what? These human smugglers have to repeat this process over and over. So it's not like they're changing, you know, for every group of people that they move. And they're making a lot of money on this. They're, they're, you, you're ultimately having um, people that are giving all of their life savings to go on a harrowing trip to try to get to the United States. We need to be dismantling those human smuggling networks. We need to make that a national intelligence priority. We need to get the key agencies within national intelligence, CIA, NSA, working on, working with our partners in those regions to stop this kind of stuff. So if you started having more arrests of human smuggling networks, capturing some of the resources they're doing, whether it's the, the residences that are using, that's being used as Safeway, uh, uh, halfway houses, the buses and cars and vehicles that are being used to move people, arresting, uh, the senior people this, that's when you're gonna start seeing a, a real dent um, in, this, in this problem because ultimately these human smugglers are putting uh, people's lives at risk. Last question. Sure. Technology. Instead of building a wall, mm -hmm. 277 million we're gonna spend in El Cenizo, sure. Rio Bravo, mm -hmm. to build a wall. Mm -hmm. Can we do a virtual wall? Sure, of course. Look, we, we know, we know what um, every mile of our, of our southern border and our northern border, what it needs. In some places, a physical barrier makes sense, usually when there's urban-to-urban -urban contact, right? In some parts of West Texas, Border Patrol's response time to something happening in, in a key area is measured in hours or days. So in that area, a physical barrier is not going to be helpful, and you need technology that can identify a threat, track that threat and give that information to someone to ultimately apprehend people. The amount of drones um, that are coming across our southern border, 
has increased and it's pretty it's pretty shocking the number of 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 you know most people think of drones just in the air but we're starting to see that in the water as well and we're starting to see on both of our coasts uh, some of that being impacted and so absolutely we need to be using technology we need increased manpower the fact that a lot of the men and women in border patrol uh, their cell phones don't work or their communications devices are difficult in some of these more rural um, areas that needs to stop as as well so we should be used and, and again we know of all the technologies that exist the things that make the most sense mile by mile and we should be we should be implementing that um, and, and it's not as simple as saying one thing everywhere, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's too complicated to do that. You know, in some places you need a thing called LIDAR. LIDAR is like radar, but instead of sound, you use lights, right? In some places you can put a, a fiber optic cable and have sensors that, that, that determine somebody's walking across that cable. Oh, by the way, that fiber optic cable can also be used to provide communications equipment to, to, to our men and women in Border Patrol. So, so yes, we, we need technology, we need um, in, increased manpower, but at the, the most important thing, we need a willingness from the political leadership in Washington, D.C., not just in Congress, but also in the Department of Homeland Security to actually enforce the laws that we currently have. And, and that is the thing that is needed, and then we know how to, how to do it once that political will is there. And you attempted, I mean, you attempted sure. to help mm -hmm. down in the middle of Rio Grande, COG. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've had all those sheriffs tell me that you tried to help them with the radios yeah. that were not working, including mm -hmm on May 24th when those kids were killed in Uvalde. Yeah. Their radio systems don't work. Sure. Is the reason why they don't have enough radio bandwidth, they don't have what they need because Motorola is very powerful in Washington, D.C., and they control those radios? N no, look, look the, the reason that didn't happen is senior leaders in the Department of Homeland Security did not prioritize the budget to go to that. It's that simple. And, and so what other things were, were received in that, I, I, don't know, I don't know the answer, but, but that, that was a decision that was made by our senior leaders in the Department of Homeland Security to prioritize something over something else, right? And so, so that ultimately um, is, is, is a problem. And again, this was a, a topic, it's an important topic. It's on top, look, I, I always try to remind people, people used to think this was Border security was just a border problem. The rest of the country is starting to realize that border security is a problem for everyone. And we should be able to have control of our borders. We should be able to know who's coming back and forth across our borders. Um, and, and we can achieve that. But again, we're gonna have to put down our swords and realize we're gonna have to work with people that we don't like in order to, to, to solve this problem. Something as basic as communication. Yeah, of course. I mean. It's wild. Well, there yeah. must, I won't say it, yeah. but there must be a reason why you're not there because you actually mm. make sense. You do make sense sure. to a lot of people. Yeah. That's the one thing that I've heard over and over mm. from people's always, he seems to get it. He, yeah. he can talk to people. Well, look, you gotta understand the issue. Right? Not only do you have to understand the issue, you gotta understand where everybody's coming from, right? In order to in order to solve that problem. And then you can't be afraid of one of your positions getting, you know, being used against you, right? It's it's shocking. It's always shocking to me how thin skinned 
a lot of elected officials are. They, they freak out when, um, when somebody criticizes them or they get people on social media you know, calling them names. That comes with the territory and don't be afraid. And, and if you're afraid of your positions, maybe you need to rethink your positions, right? Um, because if you, know, if you know what the problem is and you have idea on a solution that most people are gonna accept, then you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be afraid. Friends, thanks for joining us again for another edition of Immigration Crisis, the Fight for the Southern Border. I'm Jami Virhing, reporting from Texas for Sinclair Broadcasting. Until next time.